How's it going today? Glad, glad to be here, man. Absolutely wonderful. Work last night. Got to work tonight. So I'm, you know, bright and sunshiny. So I, I believe you grew up in the in the bustling metropolis of Plaquemine. Tell me about that. Well, all right. Well, first, I was born. I was actually born in Baton Rouge. Uh, my hometown is Plaquemine. I was born in Baton Rouge. Uh, at the time, my dad was a student at LSU. So for the first two years of my life, I lived on the LSU campus. Then once he graduated, we moved back to Plaquemine. And, uh, and that's where I pretty much raised my entire life, other than the, the few years I was in the military. And was your grandfather in Plaquemine? Yes, he was a carpenter. He was originally from a small town called Oscar, Louisiana, which is up around False River which is right next to Bush, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So somebody in my family had money. And, uh, but he moved to Plaquemine. And so my, my entire family was uh, right here and born and raised, well, raised here in Plaquemine. What did your dad do for a living? Uh, my dad was a civil engineer for the state. Like I said, he graduated from LSU, went to work for the state. He, uh, he retired from the state. They hired him back as a consultant for twice the money. Then he retired again. That's what he always said. There's nothing to retirement. I've done it three times. <laughs> and uh, he opened up his own engineering business. And then uh, maybe he sold that. And so now he actually, at 83 years old, he actually is retired. Good for him. What about your mom? My mom, uh, well, she was born and raised here in Plaquemine also. She also retired from the state. She was a state employee. She went to work for the state as a secretary when she was 18 years old. Uh, you got to love this. She retired when she was 48. She's now 80. So she's gotten more money from the state in retirement than what she did when she actually worked for him. Ain't that something? So, uh, she, she did pretty well. Yeah, she started off as a secretary. And when she retired, she was the assistant to the state treasurer. You know, so okay. she, uh, what about, uh, siblings? Were you an only child? Uh, yeah. Once they, they were one and done with me. Uh, I'm the only child, no brothers, no sisters. Uh, I'm the, the baby of the family spoiled rotten. No, I guess you were plenty enough to deal with. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Definitely. <clears throat> Growing up in Plaquemine, were you, uh, obviously with your grandfather in the wood shop, um, but were you driven to anything academically? Well, I, I can't say that it was. I, I did go to LSU for a short time. Uh, I wanted to be an architect. I love architecture. Still do to this day. Uh, Victorian houses, you know, houses with curve appeal. Love architecture. And uh, so went to LSU for about one semester. Decided to take, uh, uh, I was going to do a four-year college degree in three years, take accelerated classes. Went to an English class, and it was me, one other guy, about 20 girls during the summer, and they wore bikini tops and shorts, and the books and the grades went out the door. So that that ended my college career. All right. What were you studying? Architecture. Okay. All right. Did uh, that lead to your first marriage? Yeah, uh, well... No, I can't say it did. That was just, I don't know, local romance, fell in love, got married. You know, I'm going to really tell out of myself here. Uh, I'm on my third marriage now. Okay. My first one lasted six months. All right. 
So I was young and dumb, married, got married, and was divorced six months later. And what, uh, when, when was that? Was so, that tied to school or after? No, that was uh, I'm trying to remember the year. Somewhere right around 1980, something like that. Okay. It, it was right out of high school. Okay. And uh, so very short marriage. Uh, you know, when we got divorced, I told her, I said, look, you go. I was working on a boat at the time. I said, when you go home, you get your half of the stuff. I come home, you know, I'll get my half of the stuff. What got you on the boats to begin with? All right. Then high school. And uh, I was one of these people who were who were uh, too cool for school. All right. I got, got a, a quit high school, which and later on, I did go back and get a GED for that. Uh, but anyway, I got out of uh, quit school and a good friend of mine. Uh, was working on for uh, he was working for Midland at Capitol Marine. And he said, "Hey man, if you want a job, man, I can get you a job." And uh, so I went and applied at Capitol Marine. Didn't know anything about boats. You know, only tugboats I ever saw was uh, the ones going up and down the Mississippi River. Right. And uh, and so I went there, worked there for, and I worked there for at Capitol Marine, not Capitol Fleet, Capitol right. Marine. <laughs> what year? Uh, let's see. This had to be 78, 79, somewhere right. right in that area. <laughs> Tell me about deckhand. Tell me about deckhand onboarding at that time. There, there was no, I mean, it was just, they hired you. You showed up for work with boots and gloves and that was it. Uh, yeah. there, there wasn't any type of orientation. Uh, it was just walk on board. You're hired here, you know, put the gloves on let's get it. Right. And it didn't matter day or night, uh, you just went to work. So, uh, which incidentally, the uh, the very first boat that I, the very first tugboat that I ever set foot on was the Port Allen, which incidentally I am now one of the pilots on the Port Allen right. 10 years later. Uh, so I worked a few days on the Port Allen. Then after that, uh, they transferred me to a boat which was uh, at that time called the Cajun and uh, which nowadays is called Steve Alley. And uh, so I worked on that, like say for about a year. And, and back then the, the, the fleet, I'm not gonna say line, not, not tugboat, the fleet boat pilots, they were boatmen, okay? And uh, they were characters. First guy that I worked for, well, when I first stepped on the, the Port Allen, I worked a couple of days, worked with a guy named uh, Steve Rep, and he was also from Clock. Uh, then when I got on the, the Cajun, the guys, the, the pilot's name was Kunan Navarre. They called him Kunan, have no idea what his real name was. And, uh, but man, he, he, these guys could run a boat. Mm -hmm. They, they, they did stuff with boats that, that, you know, the pilots nowadays, ah, you can't do that, it's not safe. They did as everyday occurrences. Yeah. And uh, and I, so, I hated to hear Steve Rep was one of the first guys I met out there uh, running one of ACBL's boats at a Tiger Fleet on a Z drive. Yeah. Well, so, so okay. So you're familiar with him. Uh, yeah. And I, I hate, I hate to hear. I was friends with him on Facebook, but over COVID, man. I, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he's passed. And uh, right. Nice guy, man. Real nice guy. Yep. And uh, once again, he was a character. Uh, 
So anyway, so uh, I worked for for Capital Marine for about a year. Then I decided, well, I want to do something differently. And I went to uh, work as a mechanics apprentice for a company called uh, Louisiana Vacuum. They had 18 wheelers where they'd go into the chemical plants and suck out all the chemicals and just bring them to wherever they were going to dispose them. Mm-hmm. Worked there for about a year, and uh, which was a horrible job, man. Seven days a week, 12 hours a day, don't expect a day off. Hmm. And uh, so then I decided, you know what? I want to go back on the boat. So I went back to Capitol Marine and I walked in and he just looked at it, goes, looking for a job? I said, oh yeah. He goes, good. Be on the, be on the, the uh, I think it was Paul Adams. Be on the Paul Adams tonight. So no application, no physical, just bring your boots, get your gloves, get on the boat. Right. And uh, at that time, Paul Adams, which also belonged to uh, Capital Marine, we were work. It was it was the lead boat for the for Capital Marine Fleet, and uh, it was down in old, what they call Old Dravo. It was uh, at that time it was called a Port Allen Marine Cleaning Plant, and uh, so we ran the fleet out of there. And where was that on the river? Uh, right where Red Eye Fleet is now. Okay. I guess it's my 225. Uh, it's where Stone Fuel is at now. Okay. Stone Fuel sold out to, I mean, uh, Port Allen Marine sold out to Trinity Marine, and then Trinity Marine sold it out to uh, Stone Fuel. So Stone Fuel, where Stone Fuel is at in Baton Rouge. Okay. We worked that for a while. And uh, at that time, uh, we, they got rid of the Paul Adams. And for a short period, we had the Gosma running in the fleet. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not a fleet boat, man. <laughs> that's right. funny because uh, the guy who was captain, Charles Cannell, oh boy, anybody who's been in the marine industry who knows Charlie Cannell, he was a character. Yeah, called everybody boo. <laughs> anyway, on the, on the Gosmer, the throttles, you couldn't pull them just straight back. Like if you were going forward, you pull them in a neutral, you had to slide it over, then pull it back. Well, he mm-hmm. couldn't get accustomed to that. So we bounced off of more barges than you can believe. Can't <laughs> tell you how many times he threw me on a barge. <laughs> uh, so we had that for a short time. And then that's when Midland built the Woody Dumas. And the Woody Dumas came down and uh, it immediately took over as the lead boat in the fleet. And uh, they had it in the Waterways Journal, man. Captain Charles Canella and first mate Cohen Bush except the Woody Dumas for uh, Capital Marine Supply, Baton Rouge. And it, it was a very nice boat, very nice. Okay. So your, your fame began early, huh, Mr. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they only knew. Yeah. Uh, somewhere, I still, man, they gave us a wine goblet that that had the Woody Dumas etched in it, in, into it, you know, because it was named after the, the mayor of Baton Rouge at the time. And, okay. Uh, Still got it somewhere. We'll right. have to dig it out. Uh, so anyway, so then I worked there for, I don't know, and I'm going to be a little off on some of these times, but probably another year. And then don't know the reason, but I decided to go to work for Watson Marine down in Convent. And uh, worked out of Convent for a while. It was close to that time. We just called it Watson Fleet. Uh, they serviced a couple grain elevators down there, 
wasn't too bad of a job. It was a lot of work, though, a lot of work. And uh, that was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to try and live on a boat. So uh, Watson owned some live-on boats and transferred to the Little Henry. And that time, we, they were working out of uh, what is Tiger Fleet now, up there where the cleaning, uh, the TT Barge cleaning facility is at. Right. And uh, so we, uh, they had uh, the Little Henry and a Brandy Falgo. We worked a fleet up there. And when the big boats come down, they drop 30 barges. And, and once again, these, these were boatmen, okay? 1,200 horsepower boat, grabbing hold of 15 loads and taking them southbound. Yeah. That's around Wilson. Uh, captain on the boat was John. I think he just recently retired. And uh, man, they could run a boat. Yeah. Those guys were true boatmen. Yeah. And uh, so did that for a while. I just got tired of living on a boat. It just wasn't for me. Too small. Uh, but I worked with some good guys, man. Uh, it, it was a nice boat. Then when I uh, got tired of living on the boat, I decided to quit watching. Uh, I went to work for Weber, Weber Marine, down uh, right below the Sunshine Bridge. Mm-hmm. And I uh, worked on a boat called the Marlow, which I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, uh, it's really a boat designed to do, uh, deliver supplies to ships, has a boom on, on the front, on the front of, boom on the front of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Small wheelhouse, uh, not much of a second deck slash galley, and that's about the extent of it. Uh, but not only did we bring supplies to ships, we also uh, we'd work the fleet, cement dock, and uh, every now and then you'd do tow work. It wasn't too bad of a job. It, it was pretty nice. Right. And uh, after the uh, Weber Marine, I can't remember what year that was. Well, it had to be 84, maybe 85. Cause that that's when I went into the Coast Guard. I left when I when I quit Weber. That's when I went into the Coast Guard. And I did five, probably about five years of the, the greatest maritime service that there is, United States Coast Guard. How was that process? That that was that was a, the absolute best decision I ever made in my life. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I know a, a lot of people in our industry, the Marine industry, they, they don't particularly care for the Coast Guard because it's more of a regulatory uh, than, than the actual Coast Guard that I considered that I was in. Right. I was in search, rescue, search and rescue, uh, drug enforcement. Uh, you know, we, we did very little we did absolutely none of the, the regulatory stuff that, you know, tugboats were involved in. Uh, when I was, I didn't know where to start with the Coast Guard, man. Well, it started, uh, started, uh, was there a boot camp? Oh, yeah. Well, let me so, tell you before going, okay? All right. Before, before I joined into the Coast Guard, I'd always had an admiration for people in the military. And I got a lot of family history in the military. Every, when we have a family reunion, every branch of the military is represented there. Okay. And so I had, uh, I went to the National Guard and I was just going to sign up due to reserves, you know, I'm just going to go in National Guard Reserve and, and go with that. At that time, they gave you enlistment bonuses. And 
I don't know how they got the name, my name, but Marines called me and said, hey, come talk to us. So I went and talked to them. And their recruiting office was right there. They, they had the Marines, the Navy, and the Army. All three of them had a recruiting office side by side. Mm-hmm. So I went into the talk to the Marines and I went and talked to the, to, the, to the Navy. And when you go in there, they give you, I can't remember if it was a, a 50 or 100 question little like pre-ASFAB test to see what jobs you would qualify for in, in the Navy. And so, man, I aced it, boy. And this recruiter, he's like, oh, yeah, we got this one. Man, you can do this and you, you can do that, you know. And uh, so he was already, he was getting the paperwork for me to sign up for the reserves. And, and I, I can't tell you why I did it, but I just looked at him. I said, is there a Coast Guard recruiting office around? And you should have seen the look on his face, man. He just, why? <laughs> I said, well, I want to go talk to them. <laughs> so he goes, yeah. They got one, but it's all the way down in New Orleans, doing that, that route. And uh, so I said, all right, before I sign anything, I'm going to talk to them. So I went down to New Orleans the next day, talked to them and saw that, you know, what all they had to offer. And I'd really never had any dealings with the Coast Guard. I don't even remember seeing the Coast Guard boat on the river at that time. Right. And so he's, you know, describing what the Coast Guard is. And I said, well, this is it. This is what I'm going to join. And so started filling out the paperwork and I remember this. I can see it. I can, I can see it right now. It's line 28 on the application, two little boxes, reserve, active duty. Mm-hmm. And I went there for the reserve to be in the reserves and just spurred a moment, active duty. And you could either sign up for four years or six years, active duty, four years. So I signed up, uh, went home. My mom freaked out. My girlfriend started crying. I'll never see you again. And, uh, but it was a done deal. And uh, so when I signed, I signed up, they let me go home that day. They said, all right, be back tomorrow, 8 o'clock, and we're going to swear you in. So they, they, you stand up and you raise your right hand. You, you get sworn in. No, well, okay, it, it's, it's not, okay, well, next week you got to go to boot camp. Now, they put me in a car, brought me to the, air, to the airport, Put me on an airplane, Cape May, New Jersey, February 3rd of whatever year it was, I think 85, and uh, straight to boot camp. There was no way you were getting out of it. <laughs> they weren't going to allow you. Right. And so um, eight weeks uh, in Cape May, New Jersey, February, middle of winter. I'm from Louisiana where, you know, when when it gets 30 degrees, we shut everything down. Right. But that, you know, it, it's, it's snow. And it's just, it was just, it was miserable, miserable, miserable. What was, uh, what was Coast Guard boot camp? And Coast Guard boot camp, you have to, you, you got to remember, okay, the Coast Guard is the smallest uh, of the services. That There's more people on one, on the largest Navy base, there's more people on that base than there is in the entire Coast Guard. So they have, uh, I guess you want to call it Napoleon Complex. I'm small, but I can keep up with anybody. Right. So their boot camp is excruciating. We had prior service Marines that, that would drop out. And uh, it, it was just nonstop. Not only the physical, but the mental. Just, just trying to stress you out, see who could they could get to quit. At that time, I'm trying to remember how old it was, 25 maybe. 
I was the old, old man of the, of the, the company. So everybody's kind of looking to me and like, man, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, but anyway, it, it's, you know, you get up six o'clock in the morning and it's, it's automatic PT. Then you go to breakfast. Then they had classes. Then you do more PT. It's just nonstop to where you're worn out at the end of the day. And, and the absolute worst part of it was the running. I hate running. Not so much the physical part of it, just the mental boredom of, of run. And it seemed like everywhere you went, you had to run. You wore what they called boondockers, which was lace-up boots, mm-hmm. weighed about 100 pounds. And anytime you were outside, if you weren't marching, you were not allowed to walk. You had to run. If you're going from your squad bay to, to, to the mess hall, you had to run. You didn't have to be in formation, but anywhere as you are outside, you run. You're not allowed to walk. Hmm. And, uh, and, and it, of course, you know, you got the company commanders. They're stopping you every five minutes, just check you out and finding something wrong with you so they can make you do push-ups. Sure. And, uh, but it was eight weeks. And uh, probably, man, the, the worst night of it, uh, they do what call they do squad bay inspections every week no matter how squared away your squad day is and i mean look they check the sheets for hospital corners they open your lockers make sure that everything is stacked in there in a certain specific spot and any error that they find anything wrong they find is called a gig well we were told five gigs or less and you got i don't know it was like 30 people in here in in the squad and uh, it was golf company, 122. Anyway, we told five gigs or less. So again, so we we look, well, we shine shoes, we we everything, we made sure everything was squared away. And I'll never forget her name. She was QM1, which is quartermaster first class. She comes in and she was one of the other company commanders. And she's going through the place, you know, she finds one, two, three. We know we got this whoop, man. There's no way they're gonna find five gigs. She takes out a bobby pin out of her hair. This is a cinder block building. Goes inside like one of the little air holes in the mortar and rakes out a little bit of dust. <laughs> she said, that's it. Six gigs. <laughs> like, oh, shit. So they did what's called a white tornado. They made us go stand out in formation. This is the middle of winter in the snow. And they got her squad to come in and just and tear our squad apart. I mean, they took apart the racks, took the sheets off the bed, they threw them all out the window, second story building. They threw the racks, mattresses, all our belong, everything out the window. It's out on the parade field. Company commander, uh, EMC chief, he uh, he comes out there, he was our uh, company commander, says, you don't respect your squad, babe, so you dirty bastards can just sleep out here in the snow tonight. So we're sitting out there, you know, like all these people, you got teenagers, you know, they're 18, 19 years old, and they got some of them starting to cry. We're going to die. I'm like, look, y'all just calm down. And, and it's coincidental that they had just given us survival training. Hmm. So um, me being an old man, it's like, look, come on, everybody go get them blankets. We had those old wool blankets. And, and you know, they teach you about, uh, like, if, at sea, your boat goes down or wherever, body warmth. You know, if you got a group right. of people, you get together, you, you huddle, uh, keep each other warm. 
So we take the blankets, we wrap them around us, we put blankets over the top, to keep the snow off of us. And uh, so they made us sit out there till about two, three o'clock in the morning, you know? And uh, so then they said, all right, maybe y'all learned something. Now go get your shit off my parade, back in the squad bay, and then y'all can spend the rest of the night in squad bay. And, and <laughs> fast forward uh, 40 years, man, I'm, I'm really good friends on Facebook with QM1. And, uh, and she actually remembers that, man. But small world. Maybe I can talk so to her one of these camp. days. Yeah. And look, she's good. She's, she, you know, at a time when it wasn't real push to have women in the military, mm -hmm. she, she was so squared away. When you, when you become a company commander, you got your shit together. And she is now retired. Her and her husband live on a boat. They tour, they just, you know, motor around Florida, live in the Florida Keys when they want. She has the life. And uh, actually, you know, I'll try to connect you with her. She, she would be somebody good to interview. That'll work. All right. So moving so, forward, your Coast Guard career. All right. Moving forward. Graduate boot camp. And uh, my first duty station was Grand Isle, Louisiana. Right. When I graduated boot camp, <clears throat> You're not going to believe this, but I was so squared away. I was on a graduated, on a graduate, graduated first in my class. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I got the little ribbon to prove it. But anyway, so being that you graduate first in your class, you have first choice of the billet that you want to go to. And so they have your list, you know, there's 30 people, you got 30 billets and uh, duty stations. So I go up there and out of boot camp, man, they got Hawaii, Puerto Rico, New York, uh, uh, San Francisco. And I say, Grand Isle, Louisiana. And, and the, the, guy, the guy goes, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Son, do you realize there's absolutely nothing in Grand Isle? And I said, yes, sir, I do. But I live three hours away and I love to fish. And that's where I want to go. So I went from boot camp to a 82 foot patrol boat, the Point Sal, out of Grand Isle. And uh, have you ever been to Grand Isle? Are you uh, familiar with? I don't think so. I mean, I know where it is. I've, I've, I've not been. Well, it's changed a little bit now, but at that time, mid 80s, it was a fishing village. Okay. People had, they would bring a trailer down there and park it, and that was their fishing camp. Okay. Uh, very few. Not a whole lot of residents, but it's it's a fishing town. Right. And give you a sense of their priorities. There was one restaurant, one grocery store, and 10 bar rooms. So <laughs> that's what Roger. we do in Grand Island. You fish and you drink. Right. <laughs> so we go down there and uh, I was with uh, what you call a, a seaman, not a, a non-rate seaman. Uh, that's like a equivalent of a you know, beginning deckhand. And okay. you had two, two seamen, is a 10-man crew on that boat. And you, these 82-footers are built for the rivers of Vietnam. They have very shallow draft. And when you got out in the Gulf in four or five-foot seas, man, it, it felt like the world was going to end. I mean, it was a very, very, very rough-riding boat. And I did get seasick a few times. And... and it wasn't none of this, oh, I don't feel good. You still had to stay on your watch. So the non-rates to the ones that actually steer the boat. So you're up there, you're seasick. 
you got a little Ziploc bag or garbage bag in your pocket. When it comes time to puke, you pull it out, you puke in the bag, put it out in it, put it back in your pocket for later. And uh, there, there, there was no, you know, I'm too sick. I can't stand, I can't stand my, my watch. Right. Uh, but that was my first experience with like the law enforcement side of uh, drug enforcement of the Coast Guard, which that's a whole bunch of other stories. But good thing about that, that job was, man, you actually did help people. Uh, they had a guy, I think it was during Hurricane Juan, bought a sailboat, thought he was Joe, you know, Joe Nautical, decides he's going to go ride out the storm. The hurricane, a hurricane, not a storm, a hurricane, go ride it out in the Gulf. Well, at that time, Grand Isle had been evacuated. We were all thinking Lockport. And uh, he starts sending out a distress call. Well, Coast Guard has a motto you got to go out, but you don't have to come back. So, in other mm -hmm. words, somebody calls, doesn't matter what the, what the conditions are, you're going. So, we go out there to rescue this guy. And, uh, we get him, get him in tow, got him off his boat, bringing him and his boat back. And the hurricane, it came into the Gulf, it went back out, and it looped around Florida, and it came back in. So it was between us and, and, and the coast. So the only thing we could do was we went further south. So we're going south, and an 82-footer does not have a law of a long range of, uh, you know, of, you don't have a lot of fuel. Right. So we're on the verge of running out of fuel. Luckily, the hurricane had, had subsided some, and they had a, a, one of the boats out of Galveston had to come rescue us and refuel us at sea so that we could get back. Hmm. And, uh, but, you know, if we wouldn't have, and this is why I say it's one of the greatest decisions I ever made, because if we hadn't have been there, if we hadn't went out there, this guy would be dead. Him and his wife, they'd be dead. Right. No questions about it dead and uh, the Grand Isle was an experience man uh, just trying to you know reminisce a little bit uh, as my first experience in, in seeing dead bodies uh, first time was they had uh, it was two brothers and their three sons they had a open cabin cruiser that they went anchored offshore they had a generator and they put a tarp over the back and you know when you got an exhaust leak and exhaust fumes come in and where they laid down to go to sleep that's where they died and Damn. i know it man we, we, we pulled that boat and they reported missing the guy's wife reported missing we went found the boat pulled it back and Man, those little kids, one of them was like maybe eight, eight years old, sleeping on a uh, on a settee in the front of it. And, and that's how you, when you looked at him, other than the color of their skin and, and foam coming out of their mouth, you would you just swore they were just sleeping. Yeah. So yeah, that was my first experience with bodies. How, so, was that a frequent occurrence? I don't want to say frequent. But it, it it's oh man I don't know quite a few times a year yeah we we had another one uh, well that that whole area is, is a shrimping industry and uh, 
they had a, a father and son working on a shrimp boat. Son fell overboard and he didn't come up. And so they uh, they called us and they actually wound up getting shrimp boats to drop their trawling nets and trawl the bottom to get, you know, to find a body. And uh, this kind of graphic, but you got to envision the crabs were running at the time. And this kid's body had been underwater for 36 hours and the crabs were tearing him up. And, and so when we pulled it on that, we actually had to handcuff his father because his, hand, his father wanted to try and kill himself. Yeah. And he felt responsible. So it, it happens more than, than, you know, you don't hear about it in news and stuff, but it, it happens. Hmm. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I'm in Grand Isle. I was there for maybe a little over a year. When you come out of out of boot camp, like they don't automatically send you to what's called your A school, where you go learn a specific job. Uh, a year later, uh, you can apply. To, you know, if uh, depending on what your ASVAB scores were, you can apply for what your job is. So I wanted to be a quartermaster. Quartermaster in the Coast Guard and the Navy is uh, you're dealing with navigation. It's not like in the Army where you're dealing with supply. It's strictly navigation, you know, like navigating on charts, uh, celestial navigation. And all of this really intrigued me. And so that's what I wanted to be. All right. And uh, so I went to QM school in Yorktown, Virginia. And we were there for three months. And that's where you learn about latitude and longitude, plotting on the cor uh, courses on chart, uh, the nav rules, rules of road, you know, that we use every day in the marine industry. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you're, you're educated and all of that. And like I said, that was three months. At that time, a quartermaster was also, uh, which called a signalman, uh, where you learn Mars code, semaphore with the flags and flashing lights. I don't know if you ever seen some of these yeah. old movies when you got the two battleships right. and they're flashing lights at each other. It's Mars code. And uh, it was the quartermasters that do that. The Navy, that's why we always give the Navy shit because Navy, you got quartermasters and you got signalmen. Coast Guard, you have quartermasters who are quartermasters and signalmen. You know, we right. do the job of two of them. Now, I should say it takes two of those guys to do our job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's why I give the squid shit every time I can. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in Yorktown, Virginia, which was cool, man. If you love history, it, it's a great place. And once again, it's in the wintertime. It seemed like every school I ever went to that was, you know, out of a, a tropical region was in the wintertime. And I yeah. hate cold weather. So they, up just, there, they just wanted to make sure you liked it enough. Yeah. 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 So uh, <laughs> graduate from uh, from QM school. And, and I know you're not going to believe this, but first in my class again. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, I am what I am. So uh, this time, Hawaii is also on, on that billet. And one of my roommates, he was from Hawaii. He was on a, a seagoing buoy tender. And he was telling me all about it. I'm like, bro, I'm going to Hawaii. It is, hands down, I'm going to Hawaii. Well, at that time, I wasn't married. And when you, when you graduate from, from your A school, you have 10 days of leave. And then, then you have to go home and then you have to go to your duty station. So 
we were planning on getting married in June. So I called my, my then girlfriend slash fiance and uh, God, I can't remember what month this was. But anyway, I said, hey, you remember that, you know that wedding we got planned in June? Well, you got 10 days. Because when I come home, 10 days later, we got to go to Hawaii. So, you know, wound up getting married. And first uh, job duty station as a QM was in on the uh, Coast Guard Cutter Sassafras, which is a seagoing buoy tender. And right. uh, that was, I mean, just fantastic. But look, I, I was there for, I signed up for four years but I had to extend because I volunteered to go to dive school, which I'll get to that point in a little bit. But uh, it, it, it was it was just so, I don't know how to put it into words. We would, we would, you know, Hawaii is a beautiful place, okay? And we would have, if we would go, let's say if we went to Maui and we had three days of work, entire crew would bust ass 24 hours, get it done in a day, day and a half. That way you had two, two, two days to go party you know and right. you're, you're you're gonna be a drunken sailor okay <laughs> uh how big was that that buoy tender vessel oh uh, you, you're gonna get love this okay when i first went to it to me man look it looked like a battleship okay, okay. It, and there's a 50-man crew seagoing buoy tender is 180 feet long and 37 feet wide all right so Envision a regulation barge. It's smaller than a regulation barge. You have 50 people stationed on it, actually 52 stationed on it. And you get underway in something smaller than a regulation barge out into the South Pacific, which is, I don't know, I think it's like 14 million square miles of nothing but ocean. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you really find out how minuscule, irrelevant, that you are. Yeah. <laughs> it's 14 million square miles of ocean. And if something happens, there is nobody to come get you. Right. So, uh, and, and the boat was built in 1944, I believe. It was the early 40s. It was World War II era. Okay. And, and but at that time, I mean, look, I got total trust in the command and, and Coast Guard. Uh, little did I know, you know, about the true dangers that, that you were in. And a vessel that's so old, it's a single screw. So if the motor breaks down, you're shit out of luck. Right. Uh, they, the boat actually made, they had freshwater tanks. And you, and, and you had, but it also made freshwater off the evals. But there was times when you were underway. This boat, I think the cruising speed was 11 knots. You know, so roughly 14 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour. And, and you're talking about journeys of a thousand miles. So, you know, you're not making a lot of time. And so they would, uh, you, you you had to be extremely conservative on your water. And uh, you ever heard the term a, a sea shower? Anybody in the military? Uh, I No, I have not. All right. Well, what a sea shower consists of is that you step into the shower, you turn the water on. It's just cold water. It's not going to be any hot water. You turn it on. You do a 360. You turn it off. You soap up. Turn it back on. You do a 360. Turn it back off. And there's somebody standing at the shower making sure that you're not wasting water. 
And, and if you are lucky enough to wash the soap off, you're lucky. If not, well, you can deal with it. So <laughs> it, it, was, it, it got to be pretty bad. But uh, I, I did, I really enjoyed the Coast Guard because it was, it was very structured. It was a very structured environment. And I don't know, I just fit in. It, it, it was, you know, like I say, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. Was, was Hawaii your last duty station? Yeah, that was my last duty station. Uh, but I did a lot of TAD, volunteer called temporary assigned duty. Because you know how they say, don't volunteer for anything? Mm -hmm. I volunteered for everything. Yeah. They had anything that I want, I volunteered for it. And uh, But that duty station, not only was it in you know that horrible place, Hawaii, we went on our south trip, we went down to Samoa, which is an American territory. Right. And in route, we would go to Tahiti, Tonga, Rarotonga. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was it was rough duty, man. The sacrifice I made for my country is just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but uh, I don't even know where to get with the with, with the sass, man. It, like I say, it was a, it was an ocean going buoy, a sea going buoy tender, and so we, you know, like the name implies, it was a, it, we serviced the buoys around Hawaii and a bunch of the, the islands in the Pacific. And some of those, uh, some of those buoys, they're so close to, to, the, to a coral reef that they really don't want the ship to go in there and, and pick it up with the boom because they don't want to, you know, get on the coral and, and punch a hole in the boat. So you have a dive team. And once again, it's one of the things that I volunteer for. And uh, right now, the, the Coast Guard has their own rate. The divers have their own rating. That's their only job. But this was just collateral duty, if you want to call it. You volunteered for it. Uh, Coast Guard doesn't have their own dive school, so you had to go to Navy Deep Sea Dive School, which was 12 weeks long on Ford Island in the middle of Pearl Harbor. And uh, I forget how many people in my class, 30 people in my class, and I'm the only Coast Guard guy. So guess who's got it got picked on every single time? Yeah. Me. Yeah. That's okay. Well, I can hang I, I hung, I could hang with it. And uh so I'll get back to dive school in it later. But uh a lot of time we used the divers to go out and they would pick up the buoy, disconnect it uh from the from the dead man on the bottom of it bring it to the ship. They take care of all the painting and scraping all the barnacles and all that stuff off of it. And we would bring it back out and reconnect it. But they wanted the quartermasters to be the divers because we, you, after you service it, you have to make sure it's on station. And the, the quartermasters, because we deal with navigation and you're not gonna believe this, this is before GPS, okay? All they had was Loran C. And they had what was called satnav, which was. Are, are you telling me there was a time before GPS? Oh yeah, I want to tell you first. I got exposed when it's still top secret. So, but they would use the quartermasters to position the buoys because we use sextants. Okay, so instead of shooting stars, you had known towers, known known objects on on the land that you would use a sextant to to to, to triangulate to make sure it was on station. And because the quartermasters were trained with sextants, that's who they wanted on the dive teams. And uh, it, it was, I mean, look, you're in Hawaii, you're getting paid to dive, you know, how can it get any worse? Uh, 
Yeah. So let's see. So I volunteered for that uh, to go to dive school, and uh, which oh man, that that's an adventure in itself. Uh, it it was the Navy's got scuba divers, and then what they call uh, deep sea divers, which is with the hard hat, you know, surface supplier. Right. And that's the school that they sent us to, the uh, deep sea dive school. And no matter how good a shape you're in, no matter how long far you can run, they're going to find a way to stress you. I did. That's probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life. But, you know, hey, I did it. So I accomplished, you know. Sure. Uh, and and once again, man, being a diver in the Coast Guard, when we would go to these islands, uh, man, we went to... You're a history buff, I believe. Midway Island. I know every, most people should have heard of that. Sure, sure. I actually got to dive at Midway Island, and and, and you can see some a few plane wrecks out there. And, and uh, if you're a history nut, you you really enjoy that stuff. Uh, what was dive. the What was the job? What were you diving for? You go like like say, well, like I was saying earlier, like when when they have a, a buoy, and it, it, right. it's too close to a shoal to put right. a ship to it you go disc and, and the, the divers would dive down disconnect it bring the chain and buoy to the ship so they could service it and then bring it back over right. so it was the same you were servicing buoys at midway yes okay that, got you that was a whole purpose us going there uh and uh oh i'm trying to think midway island man all right here goes the sea story for you we're diving and, we're, we're, and it's, the water's nice and clear. You know, we're diving about 40 feet down. And at the corner of my eye, I see a shark. But sharks are pretty cool looking underwater. And when you look at them in the eye, it's just pure death. It's like there's nothing behind that eye. No soul, nothing. Just black death. Well, you see one, hey, he's pretty cool. So I, I get back to working. And at the corner of my eye, I see another one. And when, when you're diving, where visibility ends, it kind of looks like just a shower curtain hanging. Well, in that shower curtain, I can see the faint outlines of all these tails. And they got 20, 30 sharks circling around where we're diving at. So, like, excuse my language, but I'm like, fuck, I can get out of here, man. Well, right, right. You always, you always dive in pairs, okay? Well, my partner had went up to go get a couple more tools out of, out of dive boat, and so he's up, and I'm still down there 40 feet below. I start crawling up that chain, boy, and I reach down and grab my knife. I'm looking at I got a little four-inch blade knife, and you got, you know, a 10-foot shark. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so going up, and then when I, when I look, I see my partner. He's, he's going back down, and he's, you know, 15, 20 feet away. He can't see me. I'm like, shit, can't leave him down there, man. So I go back down there, tap him, tell him to look around. He sees all the sharks. And, and 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 this guy, he was a he was a prior Navy EODT. So these guys don't they ain't, they ain't scared of shit. And uh, he's like, "Fuck this!" And look, excuse my language, brother. There's a reason for this for the phrase "cuss like a sailor," and I am one. So all good, all good. So we 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 go up, and and the dive boat that we're working out of, you couldn't just get out of the water and get into the boat. You had to actually be physically pulled. So we're like, "Man, get us out! Get us out! They got shot." everywhere and guys looking like ha, yeah right well kirby slimmons that's the guy i was diving with 
You know, he's like, get me the fuck out of here. So they grab us out. They pull me first. Yeah. And as they're pulling him, shark comes under the boat. And, you know, swim fins that, that you wear, right. it takes a chunk out of the bottom of it hmm. as they're pulling him out. You're sitting in that dive boat, and excuse my life, he's like, fuck this, fuck this, fuck you, bring me back to the fucking ship. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And uh, uh, so we ended the dive, dive, uh, diving for that day but uh it, it was a once again man like i say it's the best decision I ever made in my life and, did uh, uh were you when did you get to finish that job that on that buoy did you have to wait for the sharks to leave or how does that work oh yeah we went went to the next day reef, reef sharks they come in in the morning and feed and they go out and then they come back in and in the, in, the, in the afternoons and, okay uh, they were they were what you call black tip black tips and uh, so we just waited. And the next day we went out and dove. There wasn't any other sharks. Yeah, I've never had to plan my job around a shark's eating schedule, but <laughs> that's something I ever thought about. All right. So what happens next with the Coast Guard? Okay. Uh, man, it, it's so much. You know, uh, another, you want to say, sea story. While I was off on the Sassafras, we got a... Uh, a ship had radioed in that he had seen a sailboat. He reported in a sailboat and it had, you know, the, the official number on the, on the hull of the sailboat that had been missing for like six months. It left Tahiti and it was supposed to be in route, uh, I think to Samoa. But anyway, they reported. So we go out to get this boat. And we, we, uh, we, we were trying to make a decision on whether to pick the boat up, put it on our ship, or just tow it back. Well, when we go over there, and I was part of a boarding team, I was also a boarding officer. We go over there to do the boat, you know, to board the boat, see what the condition is. And, and, and you know, and the, the sailboat's kind of rocking with the waves, and you hear this clump, 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 clump. Okay. I go on there, and it was supposed to be a man and a woman. The woman is missing. The man, the clump, clump sound was his skull rolling around on the deck and his the skeleton of his body was sitting there they had a little bit of flesh left on it and they had these giant flesh-eating cockroaches on that boat <laughs> so oh he was saying yeah we didn't we didn't pick that boat up. we towed it back to honolulu and when they and, and we couldn't even bring it into port we had they had we had to anchor it offshore so they could get somebody to fumigate it right and uh i never did find never knew i don't think they ever found a woman and they're thinking either he killed her or she just jumped overboard, but he died on the boat. And, yeah. Uh, I got one more sea story for you with, sure. with the Coast Guard, and I'll sure. leave that on. You know, back to I said, you know, you're making a difference by joining the Coast Guard. One of the biggest rescues, if you want to say it, we did, uh, it was a ship Volca. And we rescued 26 uh, crew members off of it. Sassafras had been on a six month dry dock period in Bellingham, Washington. And we were en route back to uh, Honolulu. And when we left Bellingham, we went up through Alaska, the inside straits, unbelievably beautiful mm -hmm. coming back. And, you know, we'd been, we'd been away from home for six months. Okay. So we're timing it so that we can arrive at the pier at eight o'clock. Everybody's kids, families, everybody's going to be there to greet us. Okay. So we're, we're, we're 
quartermasters, you know, we're adjusting our speed so we can time it perfectly. We're so close to Hawaii that when you look on the, on the horizon, you can see, you, you can see the, the glow from the lights of downtown Honolulu. Mm -hmm. So we got to slow our speed. Then we get the call and the ship turns 180 degrees. There was this ship sinking that was like, I don't know, maybe two, three days away. We were already underway. Nobody else would be the first unit to be able to get there. So imagine you know, how upset the crew was when, you know, you're, you you can see your house. Well, not at your house, but you see the glow of the lights and you got to turn and you know you're going to be gone for another week or so. Right. So we get on scene, bow the ship is, is underwater. And, and Coast Guard jets had flown by and dropped off pumps so they could try and dewater it. They just couldn't keep up, couldn't keep up. Got on scene and uh, we, we got the crew. They didn't want to leave it at first, but we made them. We made them leave the ship and get on board our, our ship. That night, and that when myself, I don't, we got there late in the afternoon, that night around 10 o'clock in, in less than 10 seconds that ship sank wow and i was watch when it sank and as it's sinking the generator's still running and you can see the light the deck lights still glowing as it's going down and then boom, they just cut off right so we got we had everybody aboard and here's one of the key things the life rafts that were on that ship they're supposed to automatically turn loose none of them popped up so if we would have been 10 hours late, if we wouldn't have been there, those 26 people would be dead. Right. And so, you know, once again, you know, when, when you join the Coast Guard, you know you're making a difference. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, that's where I ended my Coast Guard career, on the Sassafras in Hawaii. What rank were you at the time? Uh, I got out as an E5. Uh, which quartermaster second class. I was up to make first. I'd taken all the tests, passed all my tests, had my time and grade, and I was just waiting for the promotion list to come out. So I probably would have made first. But uh, one of the reasons I got out was my daughter was born. My daughter, Angelle, was born. I left when she was three days old, and I didn't see her till her first birthday. Hmm. So that, that kind of, uh, you know, Man, I don't know if I can, you know, I loved my job, but it, it makes it hard on family life. Right. So, I, so that's when I decided to get out of the Coast Guard and uh, came back Plaquemine, Louisiana. And uh, when I first came back, I had no intention on getting on another boat. Uh, I was going to build cabinets in my grandfather's shop where I'm sitting at right now. Uh, was going to just do woodwork cabinets and, you know, whatever. He had a shop where he built. He didn't so much build cabinets, but he built entrances to houses, the doors, the side lights, the transom. Been doing it. He was at that time, I think he was 70, and he'd been, you know, a carpenter his whole life. So I was just gonna work my way into the family business and just take over the shop when he retired. Sure. And uh sitting here, I know I did, and I was doing okay. And, and but I needed to make some extra money. Christmas time was coming up, I needed to make some extra money. So I said, you know what? I know a guy. There's one of these boatmen I referred to earlier. His name was Stanley. Good God, he could run a boat, man. Anyway, he's another pilot from Plaquemine. And uh, I called him up. 
because my, my sister-in-law was married to his son. And uh, I said, Stanley, man, can, can you give me a job, man? Just, just, I just want a deck for a few months so I can build up some time, you know, build up some money. Yeah. And, uh, about three months. I said, yeah. He said, look, come on over. And uh, I'll tell Tommy, who's in engineering. He was uh, the guy. He didn't have a title. He just, he's the one that did the hiring. And uh, so I came in to, to put out an application. And he said, oh, yeah, Stanley told me you were coming. And I happened to have... Navy Deep Sea Dive School uh, T-shirt on, you know. Well, Tommy right. is ex-Navy, so he said, "All right, man, you're hired." So uh, they hired me. This was, I think, this was 1990, right around 1990. Yep. And uh, just wanted a part-time job. And here, what, 32 years later, I'm still at Capital Fleet. Yep. That little part-time 14 and seven job right there. I was 10 and five, man. Oh, five right, days, right, five right. nights. Yeah. 10 and five. Right. And, uh, I said that time, well, that's what he was. Yeah. When, when he interviewed me, he saw the experience I had. He, uh, he saw that I was quartermaster because he was Navy. He knew what quartermasters were. He asked me, says, uh, you think he can get your license? And I'm like, yeah, I can get it. You know, I'm really interested in running a boat, but I can get it. And so he says, you get your license and you change your mind, we'll put you in the wheelhouse. I'm like, all right, sounds good. And at that time, you didn't have the steersman program. You got, you know, you, you had to have a specific amount of time on, on deck. You went and took the test. And if you passed, you got your license and then you bullshitted somebody into letting you run a boat. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, when, you, when you joined up with them, uh, you were just deckhand? Yeah, I was just a deckhand. All right. And I was decking with the intention on getting my license because later on, what he told me, he said, look, we're going to be getting a crew boat. At that time, Baton Rouge Harbor didn't have a crew boat service. Uh, Capital Marine had had left Baton Rouge and went down to Triangle Fleet. Uh, and so there was no crew boat service in the Baton Rouge Harbor. And they were going to get uh, their own crew boat and, and try to start a little crew boat service. And uh, so that was that was the intention. Deck get your license. Then when we get the crew boat, we'll get you, uh, we'll get you as one of the, uh, the pilots on the, the crew boat. And, uh, they call it the muskrat. That was the name of the boat, a little flat deck, uh, flat bottom. I think, uh, I think it had two outboards on it. Get what side, but it was scoot. It was a fun hand on a little boat. Yeah. So we, we were, we were a combination launch boat operator and nighttime security guard at the gate. And, uh, that lasted for, uh, wasn't quite a year and crew boat service just wasn't making it. And, uh, I don't know, for some reason, I guess I bullshitted them good enough. They decided to put me in the office. They offered me, you know, look, if you want to come be a dispatcher. So, uh, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to lose my job. Cause by now I didn't got used to, uh, I, I got accustomed to having a paycheck coming in. Right. So I decided I'm going to stay here. So, they moved me in the office, and I was a combination dispatcher. Uh, Bill Grantham was the owner. Uh, you cannot work for a better guy. He was the absolute best. And uh, he had also had Acadian Marine, which was a brokerage. So they, they broke me into being a broker. You know, we, we, we handled Acadian Marine, the brokerage. We uh, dispatched, and uh, when needed, I ran the crew boat. And uh, so it was me. 
Tommy and a lady by the name of Allison. We were the, the three dispatchers and we would rotate on call. All right. And that lasted for, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe a little longer, a year and a half. And that was, I don't remember the exact year that it took place, but that was when, man, insurance rates in the marine industry skyrocketed. So they had to lay off people. Bill hated it, but he had to lay off people. And we had two boats working for us at the time, the Port Allen, and he, uh, he, he, he would lease the boat. They had like the Lady G3, and I forget one of the other ones that he, that he leased, but he had to lay half the people off. This is how great of a guy Bill Grantham was. Called everybody in who were having a if captain's meeting slash company meeting. It's to all the pilots, deckhands. And Bill's there. And a good friend of his, Glenn McKinney, is also there. And so he tells us, he says, look, things are getting tight. I hate to say this, but I have to lay everybody off on the second boat. We have to lay y'all off. And part of that laying off was they had to lay me off out of the office. Said, but this man right here, Glenn McKinney, is going to hire y'all. And Cohen, you're going to go in the wheelhouse. I'll tell you more about that in a second. So he knew he was going to have to lay us off, but he arranged for somebody else to hire us. So you never missed a lick. You never missed a check. Never missed a day. Right. And not. And the other thing about it was that. I don't know the financial portion of it, but because the interest rate was so high, it was cheaper for him to to lease a fully found boat, boat and crew from Glenn and have it work in our fleet. So actually our jobs never changed. It just went, instead of having a capital fleet paycheck, we got a McKinney fleet paycheck. Right. So I went from crew boat operator, dispatcher, to you're going to be in the wheelhouse as a pilot. So, so you know, look, I... I got a little experience, but I can't run a boat. And, but once again, Bill's like, uh, you say, look, they're going to have a pilot train you. And uh, so I'm like, okay, sounds good, man. And uh guy's name was Jerry. And he was supposed to train me. So we were on a boat called a tater bug and we're working in capital fleet. And, uh, and, you know, look, I'm running a boat, Jerry's sitting in the back and he's teaching me, he's, he's, schooling me and, and, you know, baptism by fire, put you in the worst condition in predicament and then figure your way out of it. Right. So he's training, he's training me. And I guess about maybe three weeks later, come to work and uh, working nights. So, well, Cap, you got it? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Where, where? No, son, you don't understand. You got it. We fired. So, <laughs> so I'm like, holy shit, you know, and Luckily enough, I was working with a group of people who kind of took me under their wing and schooled me as I was going. And uh, so I ran the second, what we call the second boat, which is Tater Bug. Then maybe a year after that, uh, business had picked back up, the insurance stuff got uh, straightened out, and Bill bought another boat. And he hired everybody back. And that boat, which is now the Ace G, it was named after Bill's daddy, uh, Ace Grantham. Okay. And uh, it had belonged to Bushnell Towing, which I think was a Kathleen II at the time. And uh, Bill bought it, repowered it, did a bunch of work to it, and uh, he put us all on it. 
So I ran that boat. I ran second boat for eh, maybe a year. And uh, then they had an opening on the lead boat. And uh, they transferred me to lead boat, Port Allen. And um, I, once again, I don't know exactly what year that was. But so then I started running lead boat and uh, running, working on the Port Allen. And, uh, are you hearing that noise? That yeah, popping? It's, it's fine. Yeah. It's not gunshots, it's acorns falling on the on the top of the roof. Anyway, so uh so I'm working on the Port Allen as lead boat. And at, at that time, Bill didn't have the benefits that that you that you really wanted, you know, the, the good retirement and the good medical and stuff. He did what he could. Uh that time in custom fuel. Let me back up a little bit. I used to work, we worked 10 and 5, and when I would get on my five days off. I was friends with Mike, who was on the Sandy B now for Ingram, and right. him, 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 and um, he only worked. There was only two pilots on the Peter J at the time, and he wanted days off. The guy I was working with didn't want any days off. So when I would get on my days off, I'd go fill in for. I'd take one day off and I'd work, you know, four days on the Peter J. Well, sure. a little later. Custom Fuel decided to put a boat in Baton Rouge. That was a Jerry deal. And uh, I hate to do it, but Bill totally understood. And he supported me, you know, just, right. And so I went to work. I quit Capital Fleet. And I went to work for Custom Fuel on a Jerry deal. Okay. Uh, and but we also, not only did we work for Custom Fuel, we also, um, we had a deckhand. They put one deckhand on there. We worked the fleet. We actually worked the fleet just as much as what, we did fuel jobs and uh with one decade and so uh did that for three years and when you were the pilot on that like I say you, you did work for custom fuel you did fleet work but you were also a tankerman so when they had transfers to be done they wasn't had they didn't have two tankerman watch the pilot and the and the, and the, the tankerman the shoreside tankerman we went out there and did the transfers loading the fuel flaps and when we were real busy, you had to also do the field job. Uh, I guess that went on for two and a half, three years. And they had a lead boat open. And I can't complain about custom fuel, okay? It was just, uh, it, it, was, it was a good job. But I don't know why, but Bill made me an offer. I couldn't refuse. And he, so I quit custom fuel. And I went back to work for Capital on the lead boat. And I don't remember what transpired, but he needed a lead boat pilot. Nobody else wanted it. I always say that nobody's stupid enough to take that lead boat job. So then I went back to work for Capital Fleet on the lead boat on the Port Allen. And that's where I've been ever since. So the, the very first boat that I ever, very first tugboat I ever set foot on was the Port Allen. I'm now on the Port Allen for last i don't know it's been 20 something years continuously and i and i truly hope that's the last boat I ever run i don't, I don't want to run another boat you know there, there's been some discussion about them building new fleet boats and and i'm like well tie up one of these other boats leave me on the port allen but I, I don't i'm just the boat spoils you it's fast it's quick it's maneuverable and, and I, I truly don't want to run another boat hope my, my career ends on that boat how many more years you got? Uh, health holds out six and a half, man. I'm, I'm one of those ones. I can't retire at 65. I got to retire for, to get 
because I'm greedy. I want my full Social Security. Uh, yep. I have to work till I'm 67. And uh, so if my health holds out, you know, I got six and a half more years. And hopefully they're all on the Port Allen. All right. Well, switching gears, uh, you said Angel was born. Was this your second wife? Yes. All right. What's, uh, what's Angel up to? She is a radio tech. I mean, not radio tech. Uh, she gives, uh, takes x-rays, x-ray techs. X-ray okay. tech. All right. Uh, she, and, you know, <laughs> when she was in high school, she graduated high school. Everybody was pushing her, man, you need to do this. You need to, you got to go do this. And, and I'm one of these parents that you step back, you let your child find their own road. Okay. Mm -hmm. And one of her teachers had pushed her. She got a scholarship for, from one of the, the local chemical plants so she could be an operator. And it just wasn't her, you know, and, and they pushed her. In, and so she went into school for that. Grades weren't very good. And uh, she quit, you know, and, and I told everybody, I said, y'all just all need to shut up, back up, let her do her thing. Right. So she decided to go to x-ray tech school. It really excelled at it. And she was hired before she ever graduated, you know, and, and she's done really well at that. And good for her. Just, yeah. It's, you don't need to steer your, your children's life. You need to let them find their own course. Yeah. Uh, I know you live on a golf course now and you got a wood shop to play with. Uh, anything interesting about all that? Uh, absolutely, man. man. Uh, all right. So I'm out on my third wife. Love her to death. Soulmate. You know, hope she's listening to this. Can't get any better. Uh, so we got married. We had bought a house. And we were in that house for like maybe maybe a year, year and a half at the most. Guy had worked, another pilot on the Port Allen. He said, man, look, I got a set of golf course clubs. You want them? And I'm like, yeah, okay. All right, now we're not living on a golf course at this time, okay? So he gives me golf golf, golf clubs. I go out there, start hitting the balls. And if, if you haven't played golf, it is addictive, okay? It's 10 times worse than crack. It is addictive. So I get hooked on the game. Now, wife and I have been married about a year, year and a half. We got this house we've been living in, year, year and a half. And I say, uh, and the name of the golf course here is the island. I say, uh, Vicky, what do you what do you think about living on the island? She goes, Yeah, I guess. I said, Good, because at, at three o'clock we got an appointment to look at a house. So <laughs> she's like, Oh, you really plan this out, huh? So we go and we look at this house and we we and it's you know a fairly nice house. And we get back in the car and for a few seconds, we don't say a word and we just look at each other and simultaneously in stereo, we go sold. And so we bought that house and we've been living there 11 years now. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, so, and, and what's great about it is that I keep my cup, my clubs on the back porch. When I get the, the want, I can just walk out the backyard and go play golf. It yeah. might just be one hole, two holes, 18 holes, but it's right there. So golfing in between cups of coffee and reading books, huh? Absolutely. I love to read, man. Love to read. Uh, I try to I try to, to read at least an hour a day. And uh, the start of my perfect morning is a fresh pot of coffee. That's on that weak-ass Starbucks dirty water coffee, some real true coffee. And can't be cold either. It's got to be hot sitting on the back porch right when the sun's coming up with a book in my hand 
and sit there and read for an hour or two and then get busy with the rest of my day. Yep. Yeah. But I, I love reading. Uh, been that way since a kid. Uh, and uh, got a pretty decent library. I'm always looking for more books, wide range of books too. I don't like a lot of fiction, but, uh, and then you made reference to my, my woodworking. Uh, if I'm not at work, and, and this is actually taking a priority over the golf, I'm in my wood shop. It, it, uh, it was built by my grandfather. My grandfather was a carpenter all his life. And when he, quote, retired, he opened his shop just to build doors, big doors, you know, uh, like entry, entryway doors. And it was built in 1978. And it's on the Plaquemine Bayou. When I look out the back window, I'm looking at the bayou. And uh, I piddled around with him, even when he was a carpenter. Like, you know, I've been piddling around with, with, with woodworking since I was 12 years old. And... Uh, when he he passed away, I inherited the shop, and uh, there's a sign in the back of it that my aunt had made for him, and it says "Bush's Garden of Eden," and it, it, this is heaven for me. Uh, this, this is I can come here and, and time stops when I start working on some of my projects. Yeah. And uh, matter of fact, you know, they even uh, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Ingram when they had their own little magazine. They came down and inter interviewed me and they said t the title of it was, uh, I think, Toe Boats and Table Saws. And uh, they did a little interview on me. And uh, but this is where I like to be at uh, the majority of my woodworking. And I've, I've got a big stash, man. It's I've got walnut, cherry, a little bit of purple heart, a few exotics. But the absolute most beautiful wood that, that I have is, is uh, Louisiana Sinker Cypress. Uh, and, and they quoted me when I said, and just out of spurred them on, I said, Louisiana Sink of Cypress, it's the most beautiful wood God ever made. Mm -hmm. uh, now I'll tell you a little more about that in a second, but this is where I like to be. Uh, I just love my time in the shop. When I get focused on a project, like I say, time stops. And uh, it just, this is where I want to be. So how did you first encounter this Louisiana Sink of Cypress you love so much? Well, uh, I'd done some work before with Cypress, and there was a guy down in Barsal that he was a crawfisherman, and his hobby was he started going recover these, these Cypress logs. And uh, I had met up with him, and so I went down there to see what he had, and, and uh, I bought a couple pieces of it. And just real quick uh, on what Sinker Cypress is, Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, back when they, they used to cut these trees down, this was virgin forest, old growth virgin forest. Some of these trees were so dense that when they cut them, they would literally sink. They wouldn't float. And at that time, they didn't care. There were trees everywhere. And so that's where the tree stayed. And over the last 150, 200 years, sitting down in, in, a, in, a, in the mud, the, the, the minerals in the mud is what gives it a unique color. And one of the things about it is like walnut, cherry, you're going to get the same color. It's never going to change. This, every single board is different. And uh, right. I, just, I, love the history. I love the history of it and, and, and the color of it. I got a piece sitting on my desk on my uh, workbench here. It's going to be my dining room table. I wish I could show you a picture of it. You're going to have to come see it when it's done. But this piece of wood, and I love the history of it, okay? 
this tree was cut down with an axe. This piece of wood that's on my, my, my workbench now, when the tree was cut down, it was 1,100 years old. And that was roughly 200 years ago. So you're looking at a piece of wood that's 13, 1,400 years old. Right. And uh, it's still got on, on the end of it where they, where they cut it with the axe. You can still see the axe marks where these guys cut them down because they wasn't they didn't have chainsaws back then, you know. And if someone's not familiar with the Louisiana logging, they used to go in the swamp and and they, they, these were men, okay. None of none of the sissy boys they got nowadays. These were men. They would stand up in a P-roll, little bitty boat. Now imagine trying to balance yourself standing up in a boat and chopping these trees down with an axe. And you got malaria, mosquitoes, snakes, you know, everything out there. And, and this is what they did day in, day out. So you, you're chopping on this tree. And like the slab that I have on, on mine, it, it's right now, it's just under five foot wide. And this is one of the narrow boards. This this tree, when when they pulled it up out of the out of swamp, it was, I think, nine feet across. And imagine cutting that with an axe. And then you spend all these hours while, and it sinks when you cut it. You talk about heartbreak. Right. But anyway, so that's where, you know, that's where the sinker cypress comes from. And the guy that I get it from, he was a crawfisherman. And his hobby was he would go find these logs that are sunk in a swamp and they would raise them, bring them to his house. He had made a little uh, kill to dry it in. And uh, he started doing that, and it wound up being a full-time business for him. He uh, he makes these big conference tables. You know, some of these conference tables that he makes, they're, they're five foot wide, 18, 20 foot long, solid three-inch piece of wood on the top. And, right. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And uh, so whenever that day comes and I do retire off the Port Allen, hopefully, this is where uh, – I'll spend the rest of my time in my shop. Well, that sounds good, man. I know you got another hour or so before you got to get to work, but I do appreciate your time, man. Good stories. Anything else you want to share? Wait, well, that's it, man. Yeah. If we ever have a round two with this, I'll come up with some more sea stories because I got a bunch of them. Thanks again, right. bud. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Talk to you I'll later. Talk to you later. All right.